New York ain't New York anymore. How do you forge your own path in life and make a contribution to the world when you're the great-grandson of the man they call the greatest Britain, one of the greatest men, one of the greatest leaders to live in the 20th century or any century? The great man in this conversation is Winston Churchill, and the great-grandson, who we'll be hearing from today, is Jonathan Sands. He's the author of God and Churchill, How the Great Leader's Sense of Divine Destiny Changed His Troubled World and Offers Hope to Ours. And boy, could we really use some hope after the 2020 we've had. And that's why I decided to share this speech today. This speech is not current, it is from an address that Jonathan gave to the English-speaking union at the Fort Orange Club in Albany, New York, on October 10th of 2015. Now, you may wonder why I'm airing it now. Well, unfortunately, we are about to mark the two-year commemoration of when Jonathan Sands passed away, December 29th of 2018, when he lost his battle with interstitial lung disease. Although I have to mention, he was fighting it till the last minute and still telling the doctors that he was going to be such a miracle that they were going to be writing papers about him. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. A special welcome to all of you watching via our YouTube channel. We have some nice visuals again for you today if you're watching via the visual medium. That's always great to have you on there. I have no illusions anyone wants to see me, but it's nice to be able to throw up some pictures for a change and let people see some things that were happening in history. The History Author Show is a place that I hope you'll come to find people that have been lost and forgotten in history. Now, certainly Winston Churchill has not been forgotten. Although there are polls that show sometimes that school kids don't know who he is, you at least recognize him, you have some idea, and at least we know we should know him. Well, Jonathan Sands way too soon passed into history, but he's still somebody that we should get to know. And that's why I wanted to introduce him to all of you today so that you could get to hear him and be inspired by him. The moment someone slips into history, they become the past, but we could still hold on to them in the present and get a roadmap to a better future. And that's exactly what Jonathan Sands offers, not just in God and Churchill, but in his life and how he lived it. Jonathan was only 43 years old. Gosh, he was such a great guy, so full of life. One of those people, you don't know how you could ever say enough about them. And so I said, since I had this audio and since uh, now, unfortunately, we can't air it for the second printing or for another book that Jonathan does, why not share it now? When we are at such an emotional low point and we're trying to look ahead to 2021 with some excitement to know that our best days are ahead, that it's not going to be dark times, that we can and will get through this. It seemed to me that Jonathan was the perfect man to speak to us in this speech, so I'm happy to share it. I hope you all will enjoy it. When we went up to Albany to see Jonathan, for me to meet him for the first time in the flesh, we had such a great time that we decided to stay another night. Well, you figure you could get a hotel room easily in Albany, right? Not if it's the night that all the lawyers are trying to take the bar exam. Every single hotel room was taken. Well, we were ready to get back in our car and drive back south, 
But Jonathan wouldn't have it. He spoke to the people who set up the event there at the English Speaking Union at the Orange Club. And they were kind enough to give us a room right there. There was nobody else staying there. It was just great to stay in this historic building where guys like Theodore Roosevelt and other legislators from the past had hung out. And boy, are we glad that we did because the next day was a lot of fun. We went and picked Jonathan up and he'd gotten this idea in his head. He was always popping with ideas. And his idea was, let's track down Chris Churchill of the Albany Times Union. Now, Chris is a journalist and his last name is Churchill. He is the American Winston Churchill's great grandson. And Chris has no relation to Jonathan, but the first time that Winston Churchill came to America and came through Albany, he went and met this other Winston Churchill, who at the time was a novelist and much more well-known and famous than the British Winston Churchill. So Jonathan thought, that would be great. Let me meet up with him. Well, we're driving around in the car and Jonathan's calling the paper. He's calling 411. He's leaving messages. He's not nagging anybody, but he's just so passionate. The people are jumping to help him. And we're looking at our watches saying, well, Jonathan, your flight's in, you know, no, a couple of hours. You sure you really want to spend all this time trying to track down Chris? He's probably just not going to be available on this short notice. Well, he was. We met up. We had this idea to take pictures of them with iPhones, with the pictures of their great grandfathers. And it just turned out to be such a serendipitous moment. It was really wonderful to be a part of it. And that was Jonathan's passion. Just like he wouldn't let that hotel room go and let time with us go, he was determined to meet up with Chris Churchill. Jonathan wrote in the signed copy of God and Churchill that he gave me, your friendship means so much to me. Thank you for your every kindness. I so hope you enjoy this, my first book on my great grandfather. And he signed off, never surrender, which was really his attitude. Sometimes he would also take a page from his great grandfather and he would type, KBO at the end of an email, keep buggering on, just never give up, keep plugging away. All those Churchillian mottos that we know, he really lived them. And unfortunately, we never got the chance to read that second book from him. But this one, God and Churchill, is really inspiring. And since I don't have a regular interview to air for you this week, I don't like to put one up between Christmas and New Year's with so many people on the go, although they probably aren't this year. I thought this fits so perfectly. We've just passed the Christmas season celebrating the birth of Christ, and we're looking forward to 2021 and looking for something positive, some optimism. And this is exactly where we can get it from Jonathan Sands and from his great-grandfather in God and Churchill. I didn't know Jonathan nearly well enough or long enough as I would have liked. I think sometimes of what his great-grandfather said about meeting Franklin Roosevelt he said, meeting him was like opening your first bottle of champagne. Knowing him was like drinking it. Well, I would say much the same about Jonathan, except I'm sorry I couldn't have another glass of champagne and another and another because that guy made you feel like your head was swimming. It was so exciting just to be around him and having conversations. He did not have an easy life. He fought hard against people who frankly don't like Churchill. He had a teacher once in school call him out for being Churchill's great-grandson and berated him over the lie, and that's what it is, the flat-out lie, and even impossible, the idea that Churchill allowed Coventry to be bombed. I can tell you I spoke to the man who was in charge at the time, and he said it was just impossible. They, It was useless, the enigma mostly, to put planes in the air. And also, 
I know the people at Bletchley Park where they broke the Enigma Code and they similarly back that up. So here's this young kid who's suffering from the supposed sins of his great-grandfather that weren't his to bear and that weren't even true. And Jonathan also suffered from dyslexia. So that made his learning really hard. Back when he was growing up, they treated you like you were just dumb or lazy or uninterested. And I know when he saw me at the speech he was going to give that we're about to hear now, he came over to me at the bar and I said, oh, hey, Jonathan, or something like that. How you doing? You ready for your speech? And this look of relief washed over him and he said, oh gosh, I have a terrible time with faces. He said, even though I, I spent all that time with you yesterday, I had a hard time recognizing you until you spoke and your voice I recognized right away. And I thought, here's somebody with so many challenges of his own that he never complains about. He's not gonna be able to read the speech easily because of his dyslexia. And yet he's here promoting his great grandfather's legacy, not to enrich himself, but to help these people here who came to be inspired and feel a little bit closer to the greatest Britain. And that just seemed so sweet to me. And I, I already respected the guy so much and liked him so much, but that made me respect him even more. And I'll also say one last thing about Jonathan Sands. There are three kinds of people I've found being in the media business or just in life. Some of them call you when they need help. Then you call them for help and it goes right to voicemail or they never answer the email, tell you, oh, I didn't get that email, sorry. The other kind are great. They will answer your request for help. They will also ask for help and you help each other. But there's a third kind that is very, very rare. And Jonathan was one of those. Jonathan would not only answer your call for help and drop everything to do what you needed, but your phone would ring sometimes and he would say, hey, I thought of this that might help you. He would offer help just out of the blue. And that was always so wonderful. One day he called me like that and I hadn't spoken to him in a while. And he said, Dean, I just wanted to thank you for being my friend. You were one of my first friends in America. And I've realized that over time that people hear my name and they hear my lineage and they think I have Churchillian millions. And then when they realize that I don't have millions, I don't hear from them anymore. They stop calling and answering my emails and they don't want anything to do with me. And I said, Jonathan, I would be your friend even if you weren't a Churchill. It doesn't matter to me who you are related to that you're a descendant of Churchill. I am friends with you because you're a good man and you're so much fun besides. So boy, if you think of anybody here in 2021 or over the next couple of weeks that could use a call like that that you just appreciate, make it because I will never forget that. That was just so wonderful. And that's part of the reason I went up to meet Jonathan in Albany part of the reason I ended up recording this speech that he gave. His equipment unfortunately malfunctioned, so there's no video. But I was able to be there for him, and we could never have known that I would be airing it for you today. But I think it'll be something you really enjoy. It will pick you up. A little bittersweet because Jonathan has passed away, but thanks to his words in God and Churchill, he can be with us today, still inspiring us, just as his great-grandfather does, even though he is no longer with us. So now that you know a little bit about Jonathan Sands and about how special he was to me, let me introduce you to him and hope you like him as much as I do. I know you will. Find some inspiration here and enjoy Jonathan Sands discussing his book about his great-grandfather and his faith. It's called God and Churchill. 
You've all been very gracious to me, and, and it's been wonderful speaking to, the, to those that I've spoken to today. I look forward to hopefully speaking to you all afterwards. I'm very privileged to have been asked to come and speak here in Albany to the English-speaking union. My great-grandfather actually has a connection with Albany. He came here and uh, in 1900. He was actually doing a series of speeches talking about the Anglo-Boer War and his escape from South Africa. And he came around doing a, a tour around the United States and stopped here in Albany and actually had dinner at the governor's mansion with, uh, with Theodore Roosevelt. And Roosevelt didn't like him really didn't like him at all. He thought he was a fairly bumptious man and, you know, really didn't want anything to do with him. And, so, and he, didn't, he objected to the fact that Churchill smoked cigars inside, which in 1900, that's quite something to complain that somebody smokes cigars inside, considering we've only just brought in laws recently to stop people from, people from smoking um, in public at all. So, you know, it was, it, that was quite something. That was Roosevelt's major complaint with him. And he didn't like him. And then it moved on that when Churchill became First Lord of the Admiralty during the First World War and was in charge of our Navy, Roosevelt saw what he was doing and the way he was mobilizing the, the British Navy. And he actually sent a message via a friend of his that if you see Winston, will you please tell him that I'm very impressed by what he is doing and give him my regards. So the message obviously got to my great-grandfather and he would have been touched by that. But then to actually have worked with his cousin, you know, I believe it's fifth cousin, who FDR was to, to Theodore Roosevelt, to have worked with him during the Second World War was just cemented that relationship completely. Both were great men, and uh, particularly Theodore Roosevelt. But the relationship that my great-grandfather treasured throughout his life was that relationship he formed with FDR during the time of war and prior to that. It is one of the closest relationships that Britain has ever had. And my great-grandfather maintained that although we are two separate nations, we are separated merely by an ocean, but we speak a common language. It is obvious, it is an obvious relationship, and it's a relationship that I am thrilled to say has been respected by every single president since President Roosevelt and by every single prime minister since Winston Churchill. We, we are a great union together, and great-grandpapa pointed out that if we want Christian civilization to survive, it will depend on a relationship between Britain and America. I wear the British and American flag with me because I want to remind myself and remind others of the great relationship that we have with you. You are vital to our survival. You were vital during the war. You are still vital now. But many of you wouldn't know that the relationship between Britain and America didn't begin in 1939. It didn't even begin in the 1900s. It actually began in 1895 when my great-grandfather first set foot on American soil. He came over to go to the Cuban-Spanish Rebellion. We had just provided the Spanish with some weapons, and he wanted to see action. And it was the first time that he had ever actually seen action. And so he came over from India, where he was serving at the time, and he came to America. He had to stop in New York, and he met up with a friend of his mother's, a man called Burke Cochran. Has anyone heard the name Burke Cochran? Yes, I know you have, Dean. That's because you've interviewed me recently. <laughs> Sorry. This is Dean Carianus. Dean, Dean and his wife, Kathy. Dean is, um, is from a show called The History Author Show. 
And he recently interviewed me with regards to God and Churchill. And he actually lives in New Jersey and came all the way down. They both came all the way down just to, to hear this speech. So I'm thrilled that they've, they've come. But um, Dean has obviously heard of Burke Cochran. But none of you, no one else has. Burke Cochran was in your 50th Congress. He was a speechwriter for Theodore Roosevelt. He was a speechwriter for several presidents, but he was one of your greatest orators, and it's completely and utterly unknown, so it doesn't surprise me you don't know about him. But he became a great mentor of my great-grandfather's right up until his death in 1923. And he used to look at Churchill's speeches. Churchill would send his speeches to Cochrane, and Cochrane would, would put a red mark through them and say, no, not this part, and yes, have this, and elaborate on that, and send them back to my great-grandfather. And it came to the point where great-grandpa would send him his speeches and Cochrane would send them back with no markings whatsoever. And he merely wrote in his letter, Winston, it's great. Go ahead, deliver it. My great-grandfather respected Cochrane completely. But had it not been for Burke Cochrane, Churchill's speeches during the Second World War would have made very little, little sense. Cochrane taught my great-grandfather how to write a speech, how to form it, how to hold an audience of any size enthralled for as long as he wanted on any given subject. And Churchill proved it over and over again that, that the teachings that he had learned from Cochrane were valuable. I strongly advise you one of these days, take a look, find out who Burke Cochrane was. Take a look at a book that was, that was written some years ago, which is Becoming Winston Churchill, which tells you about that story. We owe America a greater debt than you realize. It is not just the Second World War, much as we are grateful for that. It is because of Burke Cochrane that my great-grandfather was able to lead Britain with his voice and to inspire people to follow him effectively over a cliff because in 1940, that's exactly what he was asking people to do. In 2005, I started coming over to this country. I'd originally come over in the 80s, and I fell in love with, with America. I thought it was an amazing country, beautiful people, and a, a lovely culture, and I wanted to know more. And so I started to come back from the year 2000. And in 2005, a friend of mine told me, you should really come over to the States, and you should start talking about your great-grandfather. And I thought to myself, nobody's going to be interested in Winston Churchill, and who on earth is going to remember him? Well, little did I know that that's not the case. And my friend promptly set up a, a two speaking engagements for me. I spoke at two schools. The first school I spoke at, 300 children were present in that room. And it's quite frightening as a public speaker for the first time to actually speak to 300 students. I then had another group of students, another hundred students, who I spoke to in that afternoon. And slowly but surely, I started to realize I really enjoy doing this. This was great fun. And so I'd like to do it again. So we started setting various appointments up with people. And I went round. I spoke at the English-speaking union in, um, in Atlanta. I spoke in, at the English-speaking union in Houston. And I started coming back on a more regular occasion. But I kept being told by people over and over again, you need a book. If you have a book on your great-grandfather, it doesn't matter what part of your great-grandfather's life, just write a book on your great-grandfather. I'm sure it'll get published. And then you'll be able to get as many speaking engagements as you want. But I felt it would be disrespectful to my great-grandfather to actually produce just any book. I wanted something that was unique. I was desperate to find an aspect of my great-grandfather's life that had never been written about. And in 2010, 
totally and utterly exasperated, as far away from God as one could possibly be. I looked up to heaven and I shouted at God. I said, Lord, go on. You tell me, what is the one aspect of my great-grandfather's life that has never been explored, that has never been written about? Lo and behold, a few minutes later, I found myself grabbing a book off my bookshelf by my great-grandfather called My Early Life. And I thumbed just to a random page. And it happened to be his escape on the battlefield of Omdurman, where he should have been killed. I then thought nothing of it, and so I thumbed to another page. And it just happened to be his escape from the Boers in South Africa. And I thought, okay, maybe I'm meant to be writing about Churchill's luck or something like that. I haven't a clue. So I just put the book on the bookshelf again and just ignored it. I went away, made myself a cup of coffee, and I came back. I just, I needed to make, a, I was making a speech on a different subject, picked up a random biography on Churchill, and it happened to be covering the years between 1914 and 1916, when Churchill was first Lord of the Admiralty, and when the Gallipoli disaster happened, he left the Admiralty and he posted himself to the French front. Once again, I discovered a time that Winston Churchill should have died in the trenches in France, but didn't. Suddenly I thought to myself, there has to be more to this story than meets the eye. I cannot just accept the fact that Churchill was lucky. Now when you look at the individual stories, certainly you can say that Churchill was lucky here, he was lucky there, etc, etc. But if you look at the entire life of Winston Churchill as a whole, and you realise that in the 1940s he was the last person you wanted to lead your country, he had been so unpopular during the 1920s and the 1930s. He was the last person you want. And when you look at where he got to and what he achieved, it does make you wonder, wow, this life might be lucky, but can it really just be put down to luck? I found that there were too many instances in Churchill's life that indicated to me that he was right in his own belief that his life had been directed and protected by what he called divine intervention. And so the investigation began, and in, 2000 and, and in 2014 I met the man that became my co-author, Wallace Henley, who has 30 years theological experience and worked in, Winston, sorry, worked in Nixon's White House before Watergate. He left long before Watergate, just pointing that out. Um, and he had worked in Nixon's White House. He'd been a journalist, and so he knew what he was talking about. God and Churchill, when you're trying to, when you want to attach God to someone, you better have a good foundation on which to stand on, especially when you're talking about Winston Churchill, a subject that everybody knows an awful lot about. So much has been written about my great-grandfather. So I knew that I could provide the expertise when it came to Winston Churchill, but when it came to God, I couldn't. Theology was going to trap me, and I wasn't prepared to produce half a book. I wasn't prepared to produce a book where I had produced, given you supposition or my own theological ideas, which you know, can be completely harebrained. So I wanted something that was solid, something that I could present to the world that would be looked at and you could take it apart and you could say, I disagree with this, but it's not wrong. And that's why Wallace and I teamed up because I provided the Churchill expertise, he provided that theological expertise. I have to tell you, I wish Wallace was with me today. He's a wonderful man, 73 years old, and he absolutely loves my great-grandfather. And he came to the same conclusion that I did, 
but 40 years ago, that something intervened in Churchill's life. And this became the basis of God and Churchill. This became the start of our research into this fact, and then it became the basis, once that research had been done, the basis of God and Churchill. Now, I want to dispel this immediately. The purpose of God and Churchill is not to prove the existence of God. That is a debate that is going to be ongoing until the day the world comes to an end. After we had reviewed the evidence, it became obvious the three central purposes for God and Churchill. The first was to disprove the erroneous belief that great-grandpapa was either an agnostic or an atheist. He clearly wasn't. Secondly, it was to already use the well-researched and undisputed history surrounding his life and his times to show times when Churchill's life should have ended but didn't and was to offer evidence that God had intervened or something or someone had intervened. Thirdly, the most important thing was once we had proven that God had intervened in Churchill's life, we wanted to use that to give hope to our world. Purely and simply because in this world, a lot of us feel hopeless. A lot of us look around and we are despondent and, and discouraged by what we see. And we felt that if, if, Churchill, if God intervened in Winston Churchill's life and intervened at times during the Second World War, then it is entirely possible that he is intervening today in our world and that he is intervening in our individual lives. So those became the three central purposes for the book, for God and Churchill. But in order to, con to effectively contradict the well-researched historians and the many well-respected historians who had written my great-grandfather off as agnostic or atheist, we first needed to look at what my great-grandfather had said for himself and professed to believe himself. I am not a pillar of the church, but a buttress, he once remarked. Now, it is a common misconception that if, in order to be considered a person of faith, you have to become dogmatic or you have to regularly attend some form of religious service. But the Bible does not say that. They shall be known by their fruits is how a person of faith is known. The Sermon on the Mount was, as great-grandpapa put it, the last word in ethics. He went on to say the more closely that we follow the Sermon on the Mount, the more likely we are to succeed in our endeavours. Now, recognising the Sermon on the Mount as the last word in ethics, that's easy. You know, no, no points for that at all. But to actually point to it and say that by following it, you could be successful, that, I feel, would be taking it a little far for the agnostic and the atheist. However, what if Churchill really actually believed that? What if he did truly believe the words that Jesus had spoken that day? What if he believed that there was power in those words? That would make more sense. That would make his comment more, make it more sense of his comment. Great-grandpapa wrote, we believe that the most scientific view, the most up-to-date and rationalistic conception will find its fullest satisfaction in taking the Bible story literally. We may be sure that all these things happened just as they are set out according to Holy Writ. That was from his essay on Moses. Churchill recognised what rational Christians have realised for years, that science exists to explain concepts we either previously or currently cannot explain. 
Clearly, by great-grandpapa's own confession, he was a man of faith. He professed to believe the literal words of the Bible. However, some have argued that, like many politicians today, Churchill merely used God as a platitude. He merely rolled him out to, to gain votes and to curry favour. They claim that in speeches such as, Be ye men of valour, and upon this battle depends the survival of, Christ of, of Christian civilization. It was simple political rhetoric. But Churchill had no need for such humdrum. The evidence that Wallace and I present in God and Churchill strongly supports my great-grandfather's own belief that his life was both protected and directed by, as he put it, divine intervention. As great-grandpapa's official biographer, Sir Martin Gilbert, told me in 2010 when I approached him about this book, the evidence is there. There's plenty of it. Good luck on your journey in finding it. Martin was very kind, and, and as you'll see at the beginning of the book, we actually give an acknowledgement to him. I've dedicated the book to him, as, as well as to my, to my wonderful wife, Sarah, who sadly could not be with us today. But Martin was the greatest supporter I've had since 2005. He made me make a promise to him, a similar promise he had to make when he was writing the Churchill biographies. That whatever I do, I report the truth, warts and all. Do not try to colour your great-grandfather over. Do not try to take things out like Gallipoli and make him look better. Allow history to vindicate your great-grandfather. Be honest. It serves no one if you lie about history. I promised Martin then, and it's a promise that I have kept, and I'm pleased that I've kept, that I would record history correctly. And I would not take the attitude of Adolf Hitler, which is history is written by the victors, so it really doesn't matter what we do right now, because we're going to win. <laughs> Poor Adolf Hitler, <laughs> 1945, and he lost. <laughs> you know, he was so sure. In 1939, he was absolutely positive that he could defeat us. He was positive he could defeat the world. And 1945 comes along, well, actually, 1940 comes along, and Winston Churchill stands up and says, um, no, we're going to win. He realized from that moment in time, the moment that Churchill was made prime minister, he realized and commented, we now have to fight a real war. And he realized that that was going to be his undoing. Further evidence of great-grandpapa's belief and confession in his belief in God came from his longtime bodyguard, Walter Thompson, who was with him throughout the war. My great-grandfather liked to walk in St. James's Park, which, if you've been to London, St. James's Park is just outside Buckingham Palace, and it's very close to Number 10 Downing Street. And he liked to go for a walk in St. James's Park late in the evenings. Now, this was in 1940. The bombs were coming over in London all the time. Suddenly, on his way back to number 10, the sirens went off. He and Walter Thompson quickly walked towards number 10. Suddenly, a massive explosion was heard. Both he and Thompson turned around to see that almost exactly where Churchill had been standing moments before, this bomb had landed and exploded. Churchill would most definitely have been killed. Thompson, in his usual fretting way, hated the fact that great-grandpapa put himself in what he considered unnecessary danger. But great-grandpapa was a leader who believed in visibility. He believed the people of Britain needed to see him there in the forefront. And so he wasn't prepared to put his life above the needs of the people he served. And he turned to Walter Thompson and with an eerie confidence said to him, don't worry, there is someone looking after me besides you. 
Walter Thompson completely and utterly misunderstood what Churchill was saying and said, do you mean Sergeant Davis? <laughs> Great-grandpa gave a slight smile and he said no as he shook his head and he pointed to the sky and said, I have a mission to perform and that person intends to see it is performed. Our initial research almost immediately proved that great-grandpapa not only had a faith, but he firmly believed that that faith was not in some mythical being whom he would parade like some men in their hours of ease and strength and safety. But instead, his belief and his faith was in the Christian God he frequently referred to in both public, his public life and his private life. I realised with awful force that no existence of my own feeble wit and strength could save me from my enemies, and that without the assistance of that high power which interferes in the eternal sequence of causes and effect more often than we are always prone to admit, I could never succeed. We easily established that Great Grandpa had a faith and that his faith was in the Christian God, and this evidence gave us the springboard to face our second challenge, proving that God, that, well, the, church, the God that Churchill believed in, did indeed interfere in the course of his life and did indeed direct and protect him. In order to recognise this, one had to first know Churchill's life in whole. As I said before, to take a single instance, you could put it down to luck quite easily, dismiss it as luck or, or fate or what have you. But seen in the context of his entire life, luck loses its sting. It starts to run out. We have mentioned three aspects of Churchill's life, three stories in Churchill's life in God and Churchill that convinced us that there was more to the story. There are loads of others and I would positively encourage you not to take my book and just look at it but to take it, read it, inwardly digest it and look further. Convince yourselves. Don't take somebody's word for it. You see I was never told that at school. I was never told at school, don't take it as writ, whatever you read. I was told at school, this is it, and you believe this, and this is, this is as it is. Nobody ever told me, investigate further. And I'm telling you now, don't take my word for it. By all means, take a look at the book, take a look at the evidence that we present, and then investigate it yourself. Only then will you be convinced. Only then will you, you accept what I am saying today. Churchill was considered a complete failure up until 1945. Throughout his life, he was pushed aside by everybody. He was written off as a treacherous, self-centered, glory-hunting warmonger who too often dug his heels in and made many, many enemies due to the unfashionable stances that he chose to take. During the 1920s, he stood up against Indian independence. And I'm not going to go into the reasons why, but he wasn't a racist. Okay, the re he saw the size of Great Britain and genuinely wanted to protect Great Britain and the empire was there to really protect Great Britain. He f so he fell out of favour and was pushed to the back benches of Parliament during the 1920s because of that stance. During the 1930s when he started warning about the rise of Hitler, that just kept him there because once again nobody wanted to listen to him. But Churchill remained resolute. He refused to be bowed by anyone. Now, the earliest instance that we found of evidence where God intervened or divine intervention interfered in Churchill's life was from an account that was written by a friend of his at Harrow when Churchill was 16 years old 
1891. His friend, a man called Merlin de Grasse Evans, was sitting with Churchill one Sunday evening after Evensong, and they were discussing their futures. Churchill said, this country will be subjected somehow to a tremendous invasion. And he confidently told Merlin, who sat absolutely aghast, London will be attacked, and I shall be in command of the defences of London, and I shall save London and England from disaster. It was a most unlikely prediction, if not arrogant, for him to say. But Merlin was so taken by what great-grandpapa said that he wrote it down. And years later, when my great-grandfather's son Randolph became his official biographer, he wrote to him and he said, Randolph, this is the story that your, your uh, father told me when he was 16 years old. So Churchill himself didn't actually write the words down and he never referred to it. London will be attacked and in the high position I shall occupy, it will fall to me to save the capital and save the empire. Churchill predicted three impossible to foresee situations. Firstly, London will be attacked. One just needs to look at a map to see the impossibility of that without aircraft. Churchill may well have known that a physicist, Samuel Langley, had managed to attempt a flight that had flown for, he had flown for a quarter of a mile before the plane came down, some two weeks before Churchill made his prediction. However, this was never in the newspapers, so it's highly unlikely that Churchill did know about it. However, for the sake of argument, let's say that Churchill did know about it, because I can't categorically state he did or did not. So let's dismiss the evidence and say, forget that part of the prediction. Let's throw it away. In the high position I shall occupy, the second part of his prediction. Now, accepting that Churchill used Langley's flight as his part prediction that London would be attacked, let's have a look at the high position I shall occupy. In 1891, Winston Churchill had no idea whether or not he was going to go into politics and follow in his father's footsteps, or whether he was going to go into the British Army. So to actually predict that he was one day going to be leading the forces of London was fairly unlikely. You know, it, it, no way, there's no way that he could have predicted that at a time of war, he would have been in charge of those forces. I mean, that's, that's quite a prediction to actually state, during a time of war, I am going to be in this position. I am going to be in command of the forces and lead them. I, that's, that's quite amazing. As I said, during the 1920s and the 1930s, <laughs> the prediction he made at 16 was impossible. It couldn't happen. Nobody wanted him. You know, I mean, even in 1940, people didn't want him until the Battle of Britain began, and then people realized his never su surrender speech was quite a powerful speech to actually follow. So let's look at the third part. It will fall to me to save the capital and save the empire. Not only did Churchill predict that London would be attacked, not only did he predict that during that time of war, he would be in charge of the forces of London, but he also predicted that he would lead the forces of London, the forces of England and the empire to victory. Now, you may want to accept the first two of those predictions, but to actually predict that you could win a war, that, no. That's, if, if it didn't happen, that's the height of arrogance. But the fact of the matter is, it did happen. And there is absolutely no way that Winston Churchill could possibly have predicted that unless he had had some sort of foresight, something showing him that that could be the case.
Further evidence of the, in, of, of the intervention comes when con one considers that had Churchill been a popular politician during that time, what would the world be like today? Churchill would no doubt have been part of the Stanley Baldwin government. He would have been part of the Baldwin uh, MacDonald government. And so therefore that would have been the time that Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. He would have remained in the government when Baldwin became Prime Minister on his own. And he would have been an avid supporter of appeasement, especially when Chamberlain became Prime Minister. And then in 1939, on September the 1st, 1939, when the rest of the world woke up to the fact that we were at war, Winston Churchill himself would have woken up. And sadly, he too would have been tarred with that same terrible brush and those two terrible words, too late. History has shown that the loss of Winston Churchill, either before the Second World War or indeed during it, could have resulted only in one, one outcome, the defeat. Total and utter defeat. Winston Churchill was the only person who was comfortable of taking the reins of power in 1940. He was the lone voice who had stood so many times warning about the rise of Adolf Hitler and the dangers that the Nazis posed to us. And he was completely uninvolved in any of the, right, any of the ability for Hitler to rise. He wasn't involved in the Treaty of Versailles and by point of fact actually spoke against it. And the reason I mention the Treaty of Versailles is because we, as the Allies, were responsible for the rise of Adolf Hitler. We gave leave to Hitler's rise because we put Germany into a serious financial problem. We backed them into a corner from which the only way they could come out was fighting. Hitler offered them a new Germany, a new vision, something amazing, change. Up until that point, Germany had been dismissed because of the First World War. And this is why at the end of the Second World War, during the Second World War, my great-grandfather was very particular when he said to people, there is a difference between the Nazis and the German people. There is a vast difference between the two of them. And he labeled this over and over again because he was determined at the end of the Second World War, when we won, which he was confident that we were going to do, that there was not going to be the same problem. There would not be the same rejection of Germany and of the German people. My, grand, my father was born in 1936. And just after the war, he met a young man called Wilhelm Schultz, whose grandfather and father had been incredibly high up in the Nazi party. Willie himself had actually decided he didn't want anything whatsoever to do with this. The war was over. And the two of them became friends. When I was born in 1975, my father asked, asked Willie if he would become my godfather. This man's grandfather and father had been part of the Nazi party, but Churchill's words had resonated with my father. Forgiveness. He believed in forgiveness. Not for the Nazis, not for those that perpetrated the Holocaust or tortured people, but for those people that were drawn into it. Okay, his father and his grandfather, that's a different matter. We don't know exactly what they did, or we know that they were friends of Hitler's, but that's all we know. But Willie himself was not, and he was abhorred by the whole thing. Now, on the many occasions that I've seen Willie, on, I've mentioned the war a couple of times. I've wanted to know exactly what was going on, what, you know, where, where was his father, where was his grandfather? And on each occasion, he bursts into tears and can't talk about it. He was devastated. 
His wife told me he was devastated by what happened. He didn't like Hitler at all. He actually found him quite frightening. So, you know, it, it goes to show Churchill made sure that we recognized there was a difference between the Nazis and the German people. And you see, this is the situation that I find, and we mentioned this also in God and Churchill, this is the situation I find with Muslims. Ever since 9-11, you know, we have lumped all Muslims into the same category. Now, my great-grandfather has been misquoted and misquoted and misquoted. He wrote a book in 1898 called The River War. In it, he drew attention to the dangers of fanaticism, especially speaking of Islam. But he also went on to state that there are some wonderful, wonderful Muslims, and a lot of them fight for the, for the British army. He's misquoted because they take his words and manipulate it so it looks as if Churchill hated all Muslims, and they use this as their battle cry to be able to stand up and say, okay, all Muslims are terrible. It's not the case. And we need to understand that there is a difference, a vast difference. Now, okay, fine, it's not necessarily easy to identify, but the fact of the matter is we need to actually not hate, but we need to understand how we can find the right people and the wrong people and discern between them. Churchill was very particular about this. If we continue to fight amongst ourselves, we will never ever have peace in this world and we will eventually destroy ourselves. If we have not learned from the first two theatres of war, there will be a third, and this will be the final reckoning. In our research, we came across one of the most stunning facts that I had ever come across, and that was about Adolf Hitler. I told you that Churchill had a prediction at the age of 16 years old in 1891. In 1905, at 16 years old, Adolf Hitler had the same prediction. But his prediction was for the recovery of Germany, that he would lead Germany, and he would help Germany recover. He was attending a, an opera, a Wagner opera, called uh, Rienzi, and he was doing this with his friend, August Kubizik. And it was Kubizik who actually wrote this story down and told, retold this story after the war. And Kubizik testified, my friend, his eyes feverish with excitement, began to speak with visionary power to the plane of his own ambitions. Hitler's prophecy was similar to Churchill, and Hitler conjured up in grandiose, inspiring pictures his own future and that of his people. Kubizik recalled Hitler speaking of a special mission which he would one day be entrusted to him, and he listened intently as the future Nazi leader spoke with such conviction when I read this piece of evidence, when I discovered this piece of evidence, I, I burst into tears. I realized a terrible thing. Adolf Hitler could have had all of the glory, all of the wonderful accolades that people have bestowed upon my great-grandfather in these many years since the war. He could have been held up as the greatest leader of all time. He could have been held in, in eternal love by the German people as their savior. He could, have it all. he could have had it all, if only he had conducted himself in the way that Winston Churchill did, and looked for peace, not for war. We could have saved 60 million lives if Adolf Hitler had looked for peace and not for war. 
That is one of the saddest things that we discovered. And once again, it's in God and Churchill, the, testify, the testimony of that. It's ironic that today, Germany has achieved every good thing that Hitler wanted to achieve for Germany in that day. All the good things, not the bad things, the good things that Hitler wanted to achieve. Germany has achieved a whole lot. And they've done it despite that monster of wickedness. The evidence supports our belief that it was in 1935 that, as St. Paul wrote, wrote in Romans 1, God gave Hitler over to his evil desires and empowered great-grandpa to rise and become the most unlikely hero ever. 1935 was the first year that the Nuremberg Laws had come into effect and the Jews were starting to be persecuted. Great-grandpa had warned tirelessly the turgid, verbose, shapeless but pregnant programme Hitler penned of German resurrection began to roll out. Had the leaders of the world paid any attention at that time, had they actually bothered to re read Mein Kampf, then war may well have been able to be prevented. But our leaders chose to bury their heads in the sand and Hitler's grip in Germany tightened. Until 1935, my great-grandfather's speeches lacked facts. He suspected that Hitler was rearming Germany. He had no idea what rate. But he couldn't prove what was going on, and so nobody was prepared to listen to him. Now enter Rafe Wigram. Rafe Wigram is a real unsung British hero. Rick Wigram was quite high up in the British Foreign Office. And he was very concerned that his superiors, and indeed the Prime Minister, were, was ignoring the evidence that was in black and white that showed how quickly Hitler was rearming, how he was achieving it, and how he was hiding it, and what his true intention was. Reluctantly, he approached Winston Churchill, who was the lone voice for help. Just prior to their meeting, great-grandpa had stood up and warned the government that if we don't start rearming now, then by 1936, Germany will be equal to us in air power. Baldwin ignored the warnings, despite knowing those facts. In 1936, using the facts that Rafe Wigram had given him, great-grandpa stood in Parliament and made a speech that forced Baldwin to not only acknowledge the fact that Germany wasn't equal to us in air power, it had overtaken us in air power, and forced Baldwin to retract his promise that no country would ever equal us in air power ever while he was Prime Minister. Baldwin had to apologise to the House, which I have to tell you is one of the most embarrassing things that a Prime Minister would have to do. And it, it, it is incredible that he, that he was prepared to do it. But he had to face the facts. Churchill was brandishing a piece of paper and on it, it had the Foreign Office signature. On it, it had the approval of the Prime Minister. He had seen the piece of paper and could no longer ignore it. So he promised that he would rearm Britain and he would promise that he would make sure that he rectified this. And he did. He began his rearmament program incredibly slowly at a snail's pace because you know what? He didn't want to upset Adolf Hitler. Oh, the nice guy with the moustache, he doesn't want to upset him. That was the argument. That was why Baldwin wasn't prepared to rearm. That's why Chamberlain wanted to seek peace. They didn't want a Second World War, which I understand. But when you are looking down the barrel of a loaded gun and the chap on the other end with his finger on the trigger is about to pull it and will pull it, 
It's a good idea to step out the way or put some lead in front of you so that it backfires on him. Baldwin wasn't prepared to do it. Until 1935, great-grandpapa could have disappeared into obscurity. Because, his fact, because the, the speeches he made lacked those facts, he would have disappeared into, into the ether, and nobody would have known anything about Winston Churchill, who he was or what he had done. Sure, they'd remember Gallipoli, but that was about it. He would have been dismissed in history. But because of the way Hitler abused his prophecy, I believe that divine intervention stepped in and at that point empowered great-grandpapa. The evidence strongly supports Churchill's own claim that his life was both protected and directed by divine intervention. The prediction at 16 years old is but one example of that intervention, and there are many more, as I said. Sadly, I don't have the time to go into all of them, but I would encourage you, look up at the times when Churchill's life was in danger, when he should have been killed. You'll see the evidence in God and Churchill. I very much hope that you enjoy it. So the questions were, was Churchill a man of faith? And if so, was that faith in the Christian God? The evidence supports that Winston Churchill was indeed a man of faith, and that indeed that faith was in the Christian God. So the second question, did God intervene in Churchill's life? Again, we find the evidence supports that fact. Thirdly, that being the case, what does it mean for us today? I firmly believe that if God intervened in Churchill's life and in the time of, the world, of world War II, he is intervening in our lives today. I personally feel that he intervened in my life. Up until the point that I wrote this book, I believed myself to be what I had been told for many years. I was a failure. I will never achieve anything. I am a social wastrel. Nobody wants to know me. I will never be a success at anything. I'm useless. I'm stupid. I'm an idiot. That's how I was treated when I was younger. That's what I was told at school. I left school with no qualifications whatsoever. At 16 years old, I gave up. I believed I would never be anything more. I believed I would never achieve anything in my life. I was that failure. I went through 50 jobs from the age of 16 years old up until the age of 35. I was what they said I was, completely useless. It wasn't until 2005 when I picked up the biography on my great-grandfather on my early life that I suddenly realized the similarities between his life or his childhood and mine. The bad, sour relationship that, I, that we had both had with our fathers. My father didn't understand me. We were too close and we didn't get on at all. His father had pretty much ignored him and rolled him out as a social wastrel. He suggested my great-grandfather join the British Army, and Churchill was thrilled because he honestly thought that his father saw something amazing in him. And Churchill naturally imagined himself as a general riding out in front of his troops. But it wasn't that. Years later, great-grandpapa found out the only reason that Randolph Churchill had suggested he went into the British Army was because he didn't believe he had the wit to actually make it in either law or politics. <laughs> that was the way that people thought about me. At school, Churchill was abused. He was beaten up. He was, you know, this, this headmaster, Mr. Synod Kinsey, was a real evil man who used to thrash boys till they bled. 
for no reason, because he was a sadist. He was kept at the bottom of his class. He was treated so badly by people throughout his political career, brushed aside, ignored. He never gave in. If I had known the stories, if I had known about my great-grandfather and his time as a child when I was at school, I would never have given up. Because the difference between Winston Churchill and myself is that Winston Churchill dug his heels in. When you said no to Winston Churchill, he said, no, I'm doing this. I believe in it. And he went forward and he dug his heels in and wouldn't give in. He wouldn't surrender. But when I met this trouble for 11 years, I gave up. And so I made it my mission in life that before a person gives up, they're going to hear the name Winston Churchill. And I'm going to tell them about a man who was a failure throughout his entire life up until his late 60s when he became Prime Minister of Great Britain and led my country and the world, inspired the entire world to a victory that was impossible. There is no way that we could have won the Second World War. It's impossible. We certainly couldn't have done it without America. But that entire situation, if you look at it, you have to admit there is something more to it. And so my determination today, my determination in writing this book, my determination in everything I do about my great-grandfather is to carry this legacy on with honor. And when I sign your book today, I will sign it with great pride, never surrender. I want you to know that the reason I sign it, never surrender, and I will put other comments, whatever you would like me to put, but the reason I sign it, never surrender, is because every time I write it, it's a reminder. It reminds me of where I came from. It reminds me that I once gave up, and this is the attitude I need. I will never again be a victim. I will never again be told you are useless and believe it. And I want to pass that along to all of you. And I want to pass this along to all that I, to, to those I speak to. We each have a bit of great-grandpapa in us. And it's how we use that. It's what we do with that. It's where we go from here. You don't have to lead your country through a time of war. You could be a leader in your family. You could be a leader in your business. You could be a leader in any situation. Just adopt the characteristics of Winston Churchill and you won't go far wrong. Churchill maintained throughout his life he couldn't have survived. He couldn't have got where he got without divine intervention. He would never have succeeded. I maintain the same thing for myself. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to present you with God and Churchill how the great leader's sense of divine destiny changed his troubled world and offers hope for ours. God bless you. God bless the United States of America. And God bless Albany. Thank you very much indeed. Mr. Sands will take questions. Uh, are there any questions? What was your uh, your great grandfather's view of, uh, of Russia, and uh, you know, in terms of his reconciliation with with uh, Germany after after the Second World War? But your grandfather also also warned about the Iron Curtain. He had a famous speech, I guess, in Missouri. Yes. Missouri, uh, and maybe you could speak about that.
Churchill did, unlike Roosevelt, Churchill did not trust Stalin. And we believe, we don't know, but we believe that the reason why, um, why FDR kind of betrayed Churchill at Yalta by, giving, uh, by agreeing to give Russia a third of Europe was purely and simply because Roosevelt knew he was dying and he wanted to protect the United States. He didn't want to leave it in a state of war. He felt it was his responsibility as president to make sure that there was no state of war there, or at least the world war in its part was over. We don't know whether that's true or not, but I, I, you know, I like to think that Roosevelt wouldn't have betrayed my great-grandfather and that it was very much for that reason. But Churchill saw through Stalin and every promise that Stalin made in 1944, 1945, he broke quite happily in 1946. It was a demonstration of the type of caliber of man he was. He turned the third of Europe into communist state that it shouldn't have been. And Churchill was devastated by it. Churchill watched helpless as the world became subjected to the threats that Russia posed. He would have been thrilled to see that President Reagan and Margaret Thatcher managed to instrument the end of that Cold War. It was a terrible devastation. I think he would be quite sad now to see in the news that there is a large chance, a high chance, that there is going to be a repeat of that Cold War and it's just going to be expanded into an even worse situation. Does that answer your question? We do need to pay attention to what is happening in this world today. Great-grandpa told one of my mentors, a man called James Humes, who is a, a wonderful author, uh, a man now in his 80s. He told him when he was but a small boy at Stowe School, he said, study history, study history. In history lie all the secrets of statecraft. We must study our history. If we do not learn from the first two theaters of war, there will be a third. Russia is in Syria for reasons that Russia knows, but I have a feeling that it is more sinister than they are actually letting on. Putin, I do not believe, is what he cracks up to be. I see Putin as another Stalin, and I see a, a situation in Syria that is much more serious than we actually imagine at this moment in time. So we need to keep an eye on it, and we need to, uh, well, as Americans, you need to approach your congressmen and your senators and you need to start applying some form of pressure to say to them, unless something's done about this, you're not going to get elected the next time round. Hopefully we will have that opportunity, but you know, Russia is pushing and pushing and pushing. And they are not, they went in on the promise that they were just doing, dealing with ISIL and, and, and all the rest of it, and they were hitting the ISIL targets. That's not been the case. They've, they have not hit the ISIL targets at all. They are actually hitting other targets. So it's, it, you know, we need to pay attention and we need to watch the world. Any other questions? Yes. Can you briefly tell the story, I, I love the story, of Churchill uh, in, in the World War, how he escapes? I don't want to tell you, no, oh, the, I can't tell you the story because it's not a brief story. Okay. But it's in the book. And I promise, and you've seen the book, and you've read the book, and you know the story. Like, I want you to read the book. I, I, I really, I'd love to tell you that story, but it really, it, it's a, a long, drawn-out story. And, you know, but it is, it, it's actually been highlighted as one of the most exciting stories of Churchill's life. And you know, I will let you in on a, on a secret, but he, he does escape. <laughs> but, but don't tell anyone before they've read the book. Yes, sir. Didn't Charles de Gaulle also 
divine providence, providence call for him to be the leader? Of- I, I can't answer for, for de Gaulle, but... Um, but yes, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure that he, he had a belief that that, uh, that was very much the case. I know that um, at, uh, it's an unwritten thing, but uh, I heard this from my great aunt Mary, that Churchill had quite a hand in the funeral that he was going to have. He knew, he was going, he knew that at the time that he was going to get a state funeral. And so he was asked, you know, various things, what hymns do you want and things like that. He wanted to be buried at, um, at Bladen which is just outside Blenheim Palace, where he was born. And in order to get to Bladen, we have two major rail lines. We have the Victoria uh, train station, and we also have the Waterloo train station. And Churchill left instructions that if de Gaulle were alive at the time of his death, and if he attended Churchill's funeral, then his coffin was to be carried not not from Victoria station, which is a more direct route, but from Waterloo station. Um... The Battle of Waterloo, obviously. Well, uh, it happened exactly that way. And de Gaulle's face was quite a picture when he realized that this was going to happen. He wasn't particularly happy. But this wasn't so much as an insult as it was Churchill's last bit of wit. And you can either look at it from the uh, one angle or another. You can either say that it was the greatest insult, or you can actually say it was the greatest compliment. It was the last wit that Churchill gave on this earth. It was the last piece of wit that he gave, and he chose to give it to de Gaulle. He chose to throw it to de Gaulle. That was, you know, to be singled out like that, I think, is is, is actually quite an honor. So, (laughs) any other questions? Yes, ma'am. If I remember correctly, uh, following the victory in World War II, Churchill was defeated as prime minister. Yes. And then later on, he was re-elected. Yes. How did he see that as into his That's a, a very interesting question. Thank you for asking that. The reason Churchill lost the election in 1945, I maintain, is because he, like many, many men, made a very big mistake. He didn't listen to his wife. And you see, you know, you know there, there is a very good reason why, you know, that we have successful men in this world. And that's because there are women who are standing behind oh, sorry women who are standing behind them who are incredibly patient and will always help them i can certainly say that's true for myself churchill labeled the uh, the socialists as the gestapo and it was too close i mean it was a matter of months after the war so it really that that didn't go down well and that's the reason why potentially he lost the election how does it fit into his divine destiny great grandmama said to him this could be a blessing in disguise And great-grandpa looked at her and very candidly said, with a tear in his eye, that it's certainly a very good disguise. But I feel that very definitely it was. And the way that I believe that it played into his destiny, his role in destiny, was purely and simply because great-grandpa had been a man on the go since the 1920s. And we were now 1945, 25 years later. He hadn't stopped. He had constantly been been pushed by people, pushed aside, having to fight his corner. The man was tired. He was already in his late 60s. So something needed to give. He needed a break. And giving him that break gave him the chance to regroup and to become strong again. Now, had Eisenhower become president and had Churchill won the 1945 election, he would have continued the war and we would have fought Russia. Circling back to your question, we would have taken we would have taken Russia out, and we would have charged Stalin with the war crimes he should have been charged with in the first place. So, 
Divine destiny happened from that point of view. Why the Cold War happens, I have no idea. We could have done without the Cold War, but then we could have done without the Second World War. But if we hadn't had the Second World War, then Britain and America wouldn't have had the special relationship we have today. So does that answer your question? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next question. Excellent. Oh, yes, sir. George Washington is also said to have been a major benefactor of God and divine providence. What did uh, your great-grandfather think of George Washington? He, he greatly respected George Washington. Uh, Churchill wrote, uh, wrote about um, the history of America, and he absolutely, there were several people he highlighted. Washington was one of them. I, I personally consider Washington to be your greatest president. So does that answer your question? Excellent. Anyone else? Nobody wants to know any of the stories. Yes, Dean. Washington statue is right by Churchill. It's not far, isn't it, by Parliament? The Washington statue? Washington. George Washington. There isn't a Washington statue, is there? Yeah. Is there? Yes, there is. No, that's Lincoln. No, there's a Washington because it's well. What they did was uh, Washington said he would never set foot in Great Britain, and so oh, they yes, put a statue. Yes, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. They put a statue there. Yes, yeah. yeah. He didn't actually put it. Yeah, he didn't set foot. Yeah. We weren't allowed to have his body. We could just have the statue. So we couldn't actually set his foot on. There. We should have taken the foot and, and put it on. <laughs> okay. So is there anyone else who has any questions? Nope. Well, look, I would like to leave you with one of my favorite stories of my great-grandfather, which actually happened during the Second World War. They were sitting around Number 10 Downing Street around the table and as a family, and they were all talking. And great-grandpa had his head buried in his, in, just literally buried in his chest, and he was playing with his food. Now, prior to this, a man called Vic Oliver, who was a failed, uh, a failed uh, basically amateur dramatic artist. I mean, how you fail as an amateur, I have no idea. But Vic Oliver achieved that feat perfectly. And he had married Sarah Churchill against the family's wishes. And they were all sitting around the table and Churchill wasn't talking and Vic Oliver was there. And he decided he was gonna try and cheer the old man up. So he looks at him and he says, Papa, in your view, who is the greatest politician alive today? And my great-grandfather's face went straight up. Big smile appeared across his face and his eyes went wide and lit up. You always knew when great-grandpa was about to insult you because his eyes would go wide. A big smile would appear and it'd light up. So he looked at him and he said, Benito Mussolini. Well, the room went completely quiet. Great-aunt Mary tells me that you could have heard, literally heard a pin drop. And Churchill returned his head to his chest and continued playing with his food. Vic Oliver just sort of looked around the room and thought, okay, well, I'll ask him why. So he looks at Churchill and he says, Papa, I don't understand. Why on earth did you choose a fascist? Once again, face up. Big smile. Big smile across his face, eyes wide, and they lit up. Because Mussolini is the only leader to have had the prerequisite courage to have his son-in-law shot. <laughs> if he didn't know what his in-laws thought of him then, he certainly did now. Ladies and gentlemen, bless you. Thank you so much indeed. I'm happy to sign books for you. God bless. Again, the book is God and Churchill, how the great leader's sense of divine destiny changed his troubled world and offers hope to ours. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. 
You can also find a link through to my full interview with Jonathan Sands from 2015 about God and Churchill. I would encourage you to go to the iHeartRadio channel for that or iTunes or our YouTube channel. However you listen to it, you can stream it right off historyauthor.com as well if you like. An interesting side note is that that is the only interview that I ever gave the guest a second shot at. Nobody's ever before said I'd like to redo the whole thing, but Jonathan wanted to get it just right. And even though I thought he did a great job, he asked me, hey, do you mind if I redo it? I'm not happy with what I did. And I said, sure, for you, anything. Just the kind of guy he was, you wanted to help him out. At least I did. I really had such affection for him. And I'm glad I did because I wanted it to be just how he wanted it. And by the way, this is the book on Bork Cochran that I mentioned to Jonathan in that speech when he called me out on uh, answering that question. But he was a great U.S. congressman from New York City, by the way. He's the one who helped Winston Churchill as a young man when his name wouldn't open any doors, go and meet people like William McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt, and get his start, taught him so much about his ability to speak. Churchill said, if I am able to hold anybody in thrall with my speaking, I owe it to Bork Cochran. And I am probably the only person who owns this book. You know, I read that story in Politico recently about how people are buying bookshelves now so that they can put them up behind them and look smart in interviews like this on Zoom calls or meetings. And I just want you to know that I have read at least part of all of these books. Most of them are guests that I've had on the show, and I always make a point to read those books. I've certainly read God and Churchill. It is very, very enjoyable. In fact, I read it as a PDF at first because I couldn't get a hard copy yet from Jonathan and I was so eager to get into it. And I very, very rarely read PDFs because, well, you can't have a whole shelves full of PDFs, right? So what's the point? When I heard Jonathan passed, I thought of a line from the British book, Watership Down. Now in Watership Down, they have the human-like rabbits that stand in for us. It's a story against fascism and it's really got a lot of friendship in it. And because rabbits are hunted and they have a thousand enemies, I thought of a line that they have that's a prayer. And the prayer is, my heart has joined the thousand for my friend stopped running today. And I thought that with Jonathan and I thought he stopped running. And I was so lucky to have run with him for a little piece of that road. I wish that road was longer, but I said I was glad that we were able to keep pace there. And running is exactly what it was like to be friends with Jonathan Sands. He just had so much energy and passion for life. He's one of those people who can eat a piece of fruit that you've had a million times and just tell you, look how great this is. And I guess I still speak about the fellow in the present tense because he's still very alive to me. I hope that after hearing him speak today up in Albany, he's alive to you too. And you will have some inspiration for the year ahead. I know you could use it. I know I could use it. So I'm glad Jonathan could give it to us. And I'm sure if he was here, he would still be saying, KBO, keep buggering on, never surrender. All those things that helped Winston Churchill get his generation through their darkest hour. Remember, you can find me at historyauthor.com or on Facebook and Instagram. I hope that you have a great year coming up. I know this year was tough for a lot of us. And so if this show could give you a little bit of inspiration, I'm happy. And I know that Jonathan Sands will be just tickled pink to know that he was still making people happy, still meeting people, 
even though he has passed away. I want to thank you for joining me today and wish you the best of luck. A very happy new year in 2021. Check out God in Churchill and have a great new year. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.